Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is David Eastall, the C86 show, another enthralling instalment in the ever-expanded world of indie pop, post-punk and anything else that you like to throw at it. Anyway, this week's special guest, as you always know, I like a special guest. This week it's going to be Joseph Porter from Blythe Power and much, much more. So I've got that interview that I want to break up into about three, four easy-to-digest little segments for your delight alongside the usual award-worthy playlist. But uh, to get the party rolling, I'm going to play your favourite and mine. Yes, this is their classic, It Is Better To Bat. Dust on the benches and velvet and varnish and church bells are ringing the hour. And the bales and the golden scales And the prisoner at the bar And now the court will rise Where were you singing this morning, my friend? Tell me what were the words of your song? Did they rhyme and scan? Were they open plan? Will we sing it as we carry him along? What will the court decide? Silence blind our eyes Is it better to bat than to bowl, says I Tell me where do you think you've been staying, my darling What was the cost of your room? It'll cost me my head and an arm and a leg And the devil to pay too soon Silence blind our eyes Is it better to 
Indeed, Charlotte Bound Sounds. That is Blythe Power with a track called Better to Bat that came from their 1990 album, Anik and Time. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show. This week's special guest, it is going to be Joseph Porter, who I spoke to last week to find out more about life, love, poetry, and also being in a band. It's a fascinating story. So, as I said, I will be um, breaking that interview up into a few sections for your enjoyment, as always. But to get the party going, I think um, we'll do the, my favourite thing, a bit of admin. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter. Just go to at C86show. And also, all the shows have been archived, so you can find them on Spotify, iTunes, Mixcloud, Podbean. Podbean. Don't mix. Don't mess with Podbean. That's my favourite. Um, and just it is the C86 show. So I've been doing it for this show for several years. So I've got about 150 to 200 interviews of bands. Jesse. I know I can hear the tumbleweed going as well. But anyway, before we have the first part of my interview with Joseph, I think we'll have another song. Indeed. Um, this is going to be one of my favourites. And that's good enough for me. This is Catherine's Will. Survive him, I will lie 
this route from day to day I can mark his leaden tread from several rooms away I know all the widows and their schemes and the rooms where they play He's getting older, getting slow He's no straw, I've no camel's back to bear him so No steady hands to mop his brow When his bowels lose control I know his belly, every fold He's damned depression where the canker's taking hold He's sweating crevice to my fingertips is a well-traveled road But I will lay down my load And I will survive him, I will last I'll be alive to see him worm cast To watch the carriage bear his cast And the ball bear his Epic, epic, that's all you can say. That is, um, well, you can say other things as well, but that's Catherine's Wheel. Um, that was taken from the album Out from Under the King. I have to say, there's a lot of detail that goes into Joseph Porter's work, and um, I wish, and uh, hopefully that will come to true what, uh, one day, that um, somebody will make a documentary about the, the incredible world that is and was Blythe Power, because um, they have been going for several, well, not several decades, quite a lot of decades, and especially Joseph Porter, who goes right back to the late 70s and beyond. Who knows? I'm just babbling. Anyway, look, this is going to be the first part of my interview with Joseph where I was, um, yes, just talking about that interesting world that was John Peel and also the NME for most of us. They were essential, but uh, essential sort of, um, yes, media 
in, in our lives. But uh, for Blythe Poe and Joseph Porter, neither were particularly important to him for various reasons. And this was his response. Joseph, what was your response to uh, the idea of John Peel and the enemy? No, well, John Peel hated us. He yes. actually quoted as saying we were one of those bands he felt he ought to like but didn't. So we never got a John Peel session and, and so never ne- never found a way into that uh, clique. That scene, basically. That little clique. I know. And I do feel a bit bad. I mean, you're there alongside people like Momus, Felt and Toya, who all got kind of the cold shoulder from John Peel. And, it, and now I sort mm. of think, oh, that's a bit of a shame. But well, we, we also got branded as a, a sounds band by NME because there were a couple of sounds journalists who picked up on us and reported on us a few times. So Enemy kind of had this way of taking against bands they perceived as being in the sound camp. Yes. Well, it was very tribal. I can remember it was very tribal in those days. And I I came (laughs) from a kind of an area where, you know, you couldn't, status quo were like, you could not mention anything without getting your head beaten up. And, you know, even if you quite liked the beat, you wouldn't admit Mm. it out loud because that was two-tone and you would be a mod and beaten up. So (laughs) Quo were the band that you just like, you could insult any band, but not the Quo. They were just like, their fans just were so dedicated. But it was very, you know, so NME people hated the Sands people and... God knows who read them. Oh, Melody Maker. They were a bit like the Lib Dems, weren't they? Anyway, that's, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they were just on the fence. Um, but yeah, is it possible? Because you, you really go back. Because because I yeah. Because you even go back beyond the the eighties, really, with your early years. So is it possible to give us a bit of a, a background to your kind of musical journey? Okay. Well, I. I... The first music I listened to was my brother's record collection when I was sort of, you know, around about 11, 12. He had Genesis, Elton John, David Bowie, Lou Reed, bits and pieces. And there was the old song I listened to in Queen and stuff like that. But then he started buying punk records in 1977. So I started getting into that and and I really got into the whole fashion thing. And I was living in a little village in Somerset, and I was pretty much the only punk rocker there, basically. And, and, yes. and I just—I really went for that. I really, really got into the whole thing. So, just, just that, briefly, just briefly, then, just what you know, what kind of year were you born? Kind of year. I was born 1962. 62. So, I'm so in six... 1977, I was 15. Yes, because I was born and... 64. My brother, who was mm-hmm. seven years older, who I worshipped. He introduced me to prog rock, so I I, right. I was at that age when you mentioned mm. Genesis, Elton John. I thought, well, God. a lot of that music, bizarrely, has stuck with me far more than a lot of the punk stuff has. I mean, the the kind of sort of sounds and um, I'm, I'm looking for in the band now are much closer to Elton John's Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. Yes, <laughs> that was that was the <laughs> album. To do anything else. You know, yes, well, I remember. Got keyboards in the band. I like mixing mixing those kind of you know seventy synthesizer sounds with Sex Pistols guitars. It just works beautifully for me. That's what I what I really like to listen to. Well, bizarrely, without going into too much detail about my brother's collection, but he was he got Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, Sergeant Pepper. This was like the mid seventies, mm. early, and then all the yeah. prog, everything prog. Hate just didn't do punk, and that was kind of his. But I absorbed that whole world, and he loved. Steel Eye Span, that was the other folk band, and Jethro Tull, obviously. Mm-hmm. So, um, you well, prob- I, I didn't listen to them until after I'd formed Blythe Power. I, it was about 1984, people started playing that to me because we had a couple songs with three, four timing, and they said, Oh, you ought to listen to this, you'll like this. And, yeah, I, and I did. So, but and, punk um, was your kind of another moment that um, made you spring forward musically. Yeah, yeah I think so, yeah. Um, Yes, I mean, that certainly got me into the whole idea of 
being a musician, the fact that I could be a musician, you know, that that was something I wanted to do and wanted to be a part of. Um, and I sort of evolved from there. It took, it took a few years. I mean, I was an absolute Stalinist as far as music was concerned between 1977 and about, you know, 19, 1982. Nothing but, you know, punk bands would do. I wouldn't listen to anything else. I wouldn't even entertain anything else. It was only when, um, really, I, when, when I, I joined a band called Zounds and... Most of Zounds were were pretty much old hippies. Basically, they went to the Grateful Dead, and and Steve Lake, the songwriter, was a brilliant guy. But you know, his musical influences were absolutely everything. Yeah. So I got exposed to a lot more music through through knowing them, um, and, and got a much more sort of wider wider influence, as it were. Yes, and that obviously that band lasted for five five years before then you moved into another band called the Mob. Well, Zans and the Mob, they were sort of concurrent because um, I, I, I knew the Mob in Somerset and we sort of all moved up to London roughly about the same time. And um, I, I was drummer for both simultaneously. This was from sort of 1980 to 1983, yes. that period. I was playing for both of those bands on and off. And then um, when, when the Mob sort of went their separate ways, that was when I formed Live Power. And was it more... I'd been I'd been I've been writing songs which I'd sort of run past Zounds and well yeah but I mean okay but they're not really Zounds songs and and I tried them with the Mob and no one was really full because the thing is both those bands had definite songwriters you know identifiable songwriters and a, and no one it's, it's like Bruce Foxton in the Jam you don't really want to listen to Bruce Foxton's songs you know because Paul Weller writes the Jam songs <laughs> well like a Topper Hayden Topper Hayden songs with the Clash you know. Yes. Ivan meets G.I. Joe. Yeah, OK, it was filled up a bit of Sandinista, but it's not really what you go to see The Clash for. You know? yes. So my songs with the Mob and Zounds were a bit similar. Yes. <laughs> they, were, they were all right, but they weren't what people wanted to hear. They'd wait patiently for them to finish. Yes. <laughs> but interestingly, well, I suppose interestingly, well, for one point, but I'll wait until we... So how did the drums come into your life? I mean, I just was curious what the, you know, the, the moment... Well, when think... we formed a band in Somerset, the logical thing to do when me and a couple of mates got into, into punk, the logical, one, logical thing was to form a band. And as one of them had a guitar, the other had a guitar which he couldn't play, but that meant he could be the bass player yes. on one string. And then the only thing left for me was the drums. So I... I, I became a drummer. I mean, I couldn't play guitar. I, I couldn't play any musical instruments at all. So it's, it, you know, it, it seemed a logical place to start. So I used a bag of my, my, my school school textbooks in a bag as a drum and a fire guard as a cymbal, which um, for our first rehearsal. Which and there you go. And that was, was it. Very effective. So then what happened for the moment that you said, right, that's it. I'm going to sort of, well, I'm still going to be a drummer, but I'm, it's going to be my band. So how did Blythe Power sort of come into fruition? I'd started writing songs through the time I was, was, was with Zans and the Mob. Somebody gave me an old guitar and, and, and I learned to play open tunes to it just with one finger, which guitarists regard as cheating, but it's a really handy shortcut to get to start yourself writing songs. And um, I've been writing songs, and by the time the mob split up, I had a, you know a, a full set of songs, and and we've been talking about recording a, a a solo album of my stuff on all the Mad Men, and but then that 
when when the mob split up and I didn't have a, a, a band to play live with, the, the bass player. What happened was that the the songwriter from the mob went off traveling, you know, and lived in a truck and never saw him again. Whereas me and the bass player were left behind in London. The logical thing to do was to form a band with him, and we just got a guitarist, someone we knew, and, and played my songs. And I mean, at the time, there was. Um, you know, we, we it, it, it was all very much hand to mouth. You you just got your mates on board because they were the people you knew. You know, there was no sort of plan to it or anything. And so, yeah, yes. that was how Blind Power formed, just sort of almost sort of by accident. The one thing that, um, sort of looking back to those kind of um, slightly golden years, but they weren't at the time, you know, a lot of people I've interviewed, um, one thing that sort of helped them was because I either claiming unemployment or being job seekers allowance or enterprise allowance. I mean, and, and that gave people a kind of certain cushion to su- at least survive while do- doing the music kind of thing. And especially the, mm. I think it was the enterprise allowance where you could be a year self-employed and you could say anything as long as you had a thousand pound in yep. your account. And that that was bizarrely a brilliant thing from the government. Well, it was. And that, I mean, because I did that too. I, I was on the dole for seven years, and I probably took the amount of people I know who took sort of, you know, sociology degrees and then sort of just purely to get the grant and then did nothing with it. You know? <laughs> I probably pound for pound. I, I probably took a lot less off the taxpayer for the seven years I was on the dole, funding my sort of education as a musician, if you like. Yes. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, it was, I mean, it was great. You know, we didn't want jobs. There were lots of people who did want jobs. So, you know, don't bother us. You know, give, give the jobs to the people who want them. We're quite happy with this. We have jobs. We're musicians. We just don't get paid for it. If yes. this was, you know, if this was East Germany, we'd be, we'd be, we'd be funded by the state to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so how long did it take for you, you to get a sound together that you thought, oh, this is Blythe Power? I mean, because a lot of people faff about well not faff but you know have a you know they're playing and it's like nothing particularly different to just a normal band and then suddenly one day you think actually that's got a little bit something unique about it whether you're motorhead or napalm death or blythe power so i just wondered when you said oh actually that that is the essence well it's um it's a tricky one that because because the bands just came together in its initial format just because they were the people who were there. There was no plan. There was no intention to sound like anything. It was just me and the bass player from the mob just got this bloke, a friend called Neil, to play guitar. And because of, you know, his... It, it was There was no plan. And this, for me, was the very essence of, of punk music. It, 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 there's no plan. There's no format. You just make the music you're capable of making with the instruments you have. That was, And that's folk music as well, as far as I'm concerned. You know, that, that, that's the very essence of it. You do what you can with what you've got. So we just did what we could with what we had. And there was no plan. I mean, if you, if you want... I mean, it's taken me 30 years to get the band I actually want <laughs> and, <laughs> and finally have now. You know? <laughs> God, that's very impressive. That is good. Mm. But did you... Because also at that period in our, in our sort of... Uh, youth there were there were, you know society was so sort of divided you know when you had that sort of mainstream pop sound and then you had that slightly indie sound and obviously as you said you didn't even sort of get into the john peel world which was a bit of a shame but but then there was that sort of us and them we you know, especially politically because it wasn't just you know there was the swp 
TVP Barley Cup. You know, we were very angsty and there was a lot of, you know, free festivals and squats. So did you sort of instantly sort of find yourself a community? That was, you know, I mean, because that was one yeah, of the well, things... Yeah, we, we inherited um, a certain amount of the anarcho-punk movement through the association with Crass, because both Zounds and The Mob recorded singles on Crass Records. You, you, I presume you're familiar with the whole Crass phenomenon. Yes. Yes, well, well I, we, we were... We, because of the associations with that, then a lot of that scene instantly assumed us we were part of it, and they gradually drifted away when they realised that we weren't, because a lot of what I was writing about was just wasn't about that, and and was in, in fact sort of not exactly diametrically opposed, but was questioning a lot of the sort of the doctrine that was accepted as. Uh, as it was taken for granted by those people. So, you know, bit by bit, they fell away. I mean, not all of them. We, st- we still have a certain amount of, you know, I like to think the more intelligent element <laughs> of that community have stayed with us and, 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 and evolved with us. But um, that's, that's where we found ourselves initially branded. And, th- and that, to a certain extent, that condemned us with uh, the music press as well because... Crass were universally despised by the music press because they because Crass despised the music press. So yes. they, you know, Crass had never Crass had become a sort of a phenomenon, topping the indie charts, instantly selling sort of you know thirty odd thousand of anything they re- released without any assistance or any advertising in the music press. And as a result of that, anything associated with Crass was despised by the music press in return. And so we were branded a crass band. We we were seen so as Zounds were. You know, a, a a lot of journalists wouldn't wouldn't even entertain the thought of us simply because of the crass association. Indeed, it was a complex time. Anyway, that's the first part of my interview with Joseph. There is still more. Don't you worry. So much more of that interview to come. I hope you're making notes because I am going to test you at the end just to make sure you are paying attention because it gets quite um, involved. But I think we're going to play one more track. Um, not one more, but we'll play another track and then more chat. But this is going to be Signalman Wise. Down beyond White Coon Bottom, black and bushy screen. In the darkness of the railway cutting, the signal cabins gleam. Soft and a man who was mad enough With 
judge laughed a mocking me But something else was there For which I was not prepared Perhaps a hint of madness By her steady voice dispelled So sing the man white Don't look out of sight She said she watches me daily As she blitz among the thorns From high above the branches blown And marching through the corn classic song from, well, I mean, they've had more than one classic, but that's, uh, for me, one of their finest ever, Blythe Power, Signalman Wise. Though I did see it written down as Signalman White. I don't know, I'm confused, but at my age, most things will confuse me. Anyway, that was from the album Paradise Raised, their mid-90s work, which I still think is brilliant, mainly because of the production values and also the songwriting is obviously. Anyway, this is going to be the second part of my interview with Joseph Porter, where I'd been asking and talking about the early years and uh, them getting their sound together, and also the first album, Wicked, w- Wicked Women, and this was Joseph's response. Joseph, take it away. Had, yeah, and, and to be honest, it was by the time we recorded that material, it was really stale, and that album, to me, is just flat. We, the initial recording we did with, with the first line of Blind Power was a, a, a cassette release called The Little Touch of Harry in the Night, which was recorded on a four-track machine in a basement in Hackney. And that kind of captures the essence of what the band was at the time. And if you listen to the first album compared to that original cassette release, it's just flat and tame and, and 
and limp by comparison. Yes. But I mean, then... it's, much better record- it's a much better quality recording, but it, it doesn't have whatever it was that, you know, people liked about Blast Power at the time, I don't think is reflected in that first album. And the other problem is, is that um, I'd split the band up before we recorded it, but um, I kept them together to do that recording because, you know, it, it was, I, because I, I wasn't anything like the dictator I became at the time. You know, I believed in democracy and everyone having a fair chance and, and you know, and I wanted everyone to have, to be able to have been on that recording and made that record. Whereas in actual fact, what I should have done was recorded the first album with the brand new lineup and it would have been, you know, made, made a lot more sense from every point of view because that album and any touring or promotion that was done for that album was done by a completely different band. It sounded different. Yes. So it, it, it was all very... We were, we were still a, a strange mixture of sort of, you know, that um, anarchist just doing it for yourself and doing it together with your friends and the music business because we had a, a very proactive manager came on board with us who was trying to sort of push us into the mainstream industry and so you know poor guy must have been sort of pulling his hair out because we were completely hopeless you know we just had no idea yeah we just wanted to you know we, we were sitting in a band and we did what we did whereas you know he had all these sort of <laughs> plans <laughs> And but well, also moving us into the indie scene, you know, because also that, that that scene and from memory, there was a lot of kind of, I mean, it's a bit strange to say, but there was a lot of almost wanting to not fail. But I just remember a lot of the scenes that I was in during that time, being a bit sort of hopeless and a bit, I don't know. Yeah, there was something. Success was a really dirty word, wasn't it? From the sort of that that whole. Well, period. yeah, it was, and, it, and it, it's 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 strange because you know we, we never had anything against the idea. I mean, I know a lot of a lot of bands have railed against the concept of of, of success. We just you know never got offered anything. <laughs> yes, this is true. Actually, you know, we we, we so it wasn't it was it was a matter of choice on our part. You know, we just didn't really have a plan yes, and we didn't have anyone behind us with a plan or the money to put that plan out because you know a, a lot of a lot of the music industry is, is, is based on I mean I've been a magazine editor myself long enough to know that you know if you can pay for advertising you get editorial copy yes. um, and the first thing we did when we when we set up our own record label the first thing that happened was we got we, we we got some letters from all the mainstream music papers inviting us to advertise and, and basically saying you know they would cover our we we would get get ed, editorial coverage of our product if we did and that's yeah that's just business I mean I know but it's also a bit disappointing when you find that out and you think oh god well I know it it is a little if you when you when you're young and foolish and you and you've been, you yes. I, I used to read enemy and think these guys are on our side you know they're writing this for us they're doing this for us. <laughs> And, and I used to love New Musical Express, before, you know, when I was still living in Somerset, a little 15-year-old punk rocker. It was like Julie Burchill and Tony Parsons. They're my mates, you know. They're sort of guiding me through this wicked world and showing me the way forward. In actual fact, <laughs> they're just working. They're just, they're just earning a living and, and, and helping, the own, helping their publishers to make money, you know. They're just doing a job. It was like the Godfather. They're just doing business. But then you signed to Midnight Music, didn't you? And then, the, right, yes. then the albums just came out uh, well because then midnight had although they they may not have had money they had credit <laughs> so, so yeah um 
what happened was the guy who ran Midnight also acquired this really good studio as part of his business, his, his admittedly failing business empire. But it took two or three years to fail, which gave us time to sort of play around in the studio. Um, so, yeah, that, that, that was good. Um, there was never a lot, great deal of moving forward with Midnight because, you know, the business, even by the time we were signed to them, they really were starting a downward spiral. And uh, <laughs> it kind of took us with it. <laughs> yes. But you did, in 91, nearly post-Thatcher and Poltax, you brought out the album that, I guess, is that, is, is that the album that you have the fondest memories? Because that's the one, when I was meeting Blythe Power fans, this is the one that everybody had in their collection, the guns... Of Castle Carey. So was this Guns of Castle Carey? No, I mean Guns of Castle Carey is, is is it's really badly produced. There's a, I, I love the songs on it, but it's terribly produced, and it wasn't by ideal lineup of the band either. Um, what happened with 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 Castle Carey? The, the previous album, Anna Contine, the guy who ran Midnight Music was a brilliant producer, Nick Ralph, and he produced Anna Contine and he made it really, really did such a good job with it. And when we came to Castle Carey, essentially what we wanted to do was Anakin time with keyboards. But because by then his business was really crashing down around his ears, he didn't have the time to produce it. And we, we had a sort of a budget-priced engineer produce it for us, as opposed to the, the, the house engineer in the studio who'd been there for years. Um, so it was, you know, we we didn't have the benefit of experience going to the production of that. Yes. And while you know, I stand by a lot of the songs, the actual recording itself is a disappointment. Yeah, but then you you thought this is it. We're going to do what every person wants to. You start your own record label, downward spiral. Well, we had no choice. <laughs> <laughs> Again, we had no choice. No one would. We we weren't. By that time, we were long in the tooth. We weren't. We weren't fashionable. We weren't really viable. Um, no record label would invest in us. So we had to do it ourselves. Yeah. Yes. Um, I mean, it, it turned out that we actually made a living that way as opposed to a lot of bands who are signed to labels. You know, the musicians are always the last people to get paid. You know, the label will spend money even on... Even the people who carry your, your stuff in for you will get paid. But <laughs> musicians, you know, that, that's where all the money goes. I know, <laughs> this is true. You don't need. So did you so by we, then... We, I was just going to say, with, with starting the record label, you know, having spoke to quite a few who don't did indie ones and, you know, the people from Sarah Records, they didn't really have a clue. So it was a complete learning curve and turned out to be OK. Did you have a bit more kind of, OK, we know what this is, we know what a receipt is, we know what publishing... We had a little bit more experience just through because we'd worked the way we'd worked with nick at midnight music you know we kind of saw what he did so we knew about publishing and distribution and stuff a little bit about it we knew kind of enough to go through the motions you know so yeah we had a we had a little bit more of a clue and uh, rob chalice who'd managed us for a couple of years he'd sort of um he'd done his best to sort of leave us in a position where we might stand a chance of not sinking without trace yeah he's got us onto midnight and um yeah, you know, we learned a few things from him. So we weren't entirely um, starting from scratch. Because one of those, one of my favourite albums, is probably one that you don't like, is Paradise Raised. I, I played that continuously because I thought the songs were epic mm. and I loved the yeah. keyboard. Pa Paradise Raised is great. I, it, it's, it's one of, it is definitely one, 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 of, one of the better ones because it had a good producer. And this is the thing with our, our releases, where there's been 
the one thing all the, the best ones have in common is that they've had a decent producer. Uh, and Paradise Race was the first one we did at, at um, Trinity Heights with Fred Purser, who um, I don't know if you know about Fred. He was guitarist with the Tigers of Pantang, and before that he was guitarist with Penetration. Wow. So okay. he knew how to produce guitars really well, and that's what we needed, someone who knew how to produce a band for which the guitar was a key element. Yes. And, and once, you know, he's, rec- he's produced every studio recording we've done since. And I've been happy with all of them as a result. <laughs> well, it's, it's, He's it, very good. It is kind of amazing the importance of that because I do. I remember yeah. sort of did an interview with Fast Eddie, and um, when they were on their third album as Motorhead, I think that they were having a few problems. And someone said, "Why don't you produce this, Eddie? You know, you're you're okay." And it kind of that was kind of I think the last album he was on, and it was not a good experience. So obviously that that. You do need somebody who isn't in the band doing that. Yeah, work. absolutely. You you really do. But the most most of what you need someone who knows their job, and you know all all our best recordings have been done with the benefit of a of, of a good producer. Indeed, make notes. It might just save you in the long run. Anyway, that was Joseph Porter. Wise words. Um, that's the second part. More still to come. But I think we'll have some more still music. Music, maestro. This is going to be. If you like Blythe Power, by the way, fill your boots. This is solid gold, easy action radio. If you don't, you should. Look, this is Swing. You will love this one.
I know, right to the last note. That is Swing, and that's Blythe Power from the L... I don't know, I shouldn't say Blythe Power every time. It's obvious, isn't it? And that's from their album, Out From Under The King, taken, yes, from 1996, a fine year. And one of their best albums, that's what I'm saying. I don't know, I expect the band all hated it or something. It normally is the way. Anyway, they should really study the uh, work of Joseph Porter for A-level English, because, uh, frankly, he's one of the greatest singer-songwriters of all time. And I'm not just saying that. Anyway, this is going to be the second, third part of my interview, third part, um, where I'd been babbling for a few minutes about the normal narrative of a band, which is five years. Normally you get together, make the album, 
all going well. Second album, not so good. And then you all hate each other and split up. But not Joseph. He kept trucking and trucking and going through the decades and still going with it. And I just wondered, what was it or what is it that keeps him going? And this was his reply. Joseph, what is it? Tell us. Well, that's now. right. There, there was never any reason to stop, basically. I mean, it. And, and, and I'd never gotten what I wanted out of it. What, what, all I really ever wanted to do was, was to make recordings that I was satisfied with. And it was, I was always looking forward to doing that. I was yeah. always, you know, not as opposed to looking backwards, you know. I was always waiting. The next one's going to be, but okay, there's a load of mistakes on this one. We'll do it better next time. So there was all, that was always the kind of the grapes of tantalus dangling out of my reach, you know. I mean, the last, the last studio recording we did was as near as I've ever gotten to that. The next one will be even closer because, you know, I mean, the lineup I have of the band now, is, it's, it's fantastic. You know, it, there, is no, there are no hidden agendas. Really <laughs> Everyone in the band is, is completely behind me. Yes. Is, you know, and, and not, with a, not with a poised dagger. <laughs> Because really you have got a fantastic <laughs> list of former members. I mean, well, yes, absolutely, yeah. <clears throat> and do you? And are there any that you still send Christmas cards to, or had any solstice cards? Uh, one or two, <clears throat> one or two. But generally, people have left the band for a reason. Yes, um, you know that, and they're, yeah. But you know, there are, there are. I probably speak to more of my ex-girlfriends than I do ex-band members, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> so when you were saying, just at the beginning, you know, you, you know, you, as we all were, a little bit sort of let's all have a voice and have a vote and, and mm. let's talk about this issue for sort of days on end. When, was, when did the moment come you think, look, I've got to, we're going to make this, I'm going to make this decision? That would have been after, um, oh, the late 90s, after Out From Under The King, when I essentially split the band up completely because it was there was, there was this weird situation that had been going on for for a long, long time, whereby if there was any dirty work to be done, any shit to shovel, anyone to let down, anyone to to fire, any any promoters to disappoint, it was my band. If there was anything democratic to do, then it was everyone's band. You know, if there was any nice things to do, it was everyone's band. And I think one 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 of the things that really really opened my eyes was um, the Performing Rights Society, the PRS, they used to have this thing whereby any unclaimed royalties from radio play from across their membership was divided up between the entire membership. And so out of the blue, if you were a member of the Performing Rights Society, you'd get a, you'd get a check for like about £400 just out of the blue every year, and that was fantastic. But in order to join the Performing Rights Society, you had to have t- published two no, no, three songs. You had to have three songwriting credits to your name. So I got everyone together and I said, right, you know, I, I think you, you guys can have a share of this. I, I, I credited everyone on Paradise Raised, I think it was, with three songs. So that those three songs were credited to everyone so they could join the PRS and get the free money. But inexplicably, um, they kind of thought they'd actually written them. <laughs> so, <laughs> You know, it, 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 it evolved into this situation whereby, oh, those, those are songs that we've written and, you know, we are now songwriters, whereas in actual fact, I thought I was doing them a favour. But, you know, so that was that was a kind of, um, not quite a slap in the face, but it was an eye-opener for me. And I subsequently, when when I did um, completely change the line-up at, um, in the late 90s, 
then I got in touch with the PRS and found that a lot of my songs, someone had registered in their names as, as joint writers, you know, and there was all this kind of very weird stuff that I had to set straight with. Well, hang on, no, no, I wrote that. Wow. So wow. that was the kind of thing that I, I was dealing with, and, and that was the kind of thing that opened my eyes. Well, hang on, you know, and, and ultimately there was things like one of the albums, there was... The choice of songs was, was, was always decided democratically. And Paradise Raised, for all I like the songs, there's a, an imbalance on that. It's not, the balance, it's not the selection of songs I would have chosen. There, there's not quite enough of the sort of the harder rock songs on it. Um, and that was it. I, I decided, you know, really as a result of that experience, you, you can't make art by democracy. You know, it's only going to work. I'm not going to get what I want if I let all these other people with their own agendas do their own thing with it. So gradually I became more and more despotic. And, um, and now I am, you know, yeah, complete and utter. I am, I, I, I am now tyrant. Fantastic. <laughs> Things move along. But the yes. main thing is, is, is that now everyone in the band, I mean, I mean, it's pretty, pretty much family. You know? <laughs> and everyone's got their own projects who wants them they're doing their own thing um as, as well as Blythe Power so when they're in Blythe Power they're quite happy just to do what I want them you know what, what I want them to do no one's sort of there's no frustrated songwriters wanting to get their material on the stage with the band yes. because that had been tried before and it never worked well hang on you know you want me to sing this song but I it's about elves I'm not going to sing it you know? <laughs> 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 did you when you look back do you feel a little bit like god oh, that took a long time to learn that lesson or did you feel it did yeah i let it go on for far too long i wasted and and this is some of the songs i'm writing now draws on that experience you know i wasting so much time <laughs> i wasted literally decades not trying not doing what i wanted trying to sort of be various other things you know first of all we tried to be the band in the industry to do all that stuff. Then I tried to sort of, you know, be nice to everyone and run it as a democracy, let everyone have their say, be Mr. You know, Mr. Nice Guy. And, and, and it literally, you know, from, from God almighty, from about 1980, yeah, from, from, from 1986 up until I'd say about five years ago. No, I suppose, no, it wasn't, it was longer than that. It was the, um, when we started the trilogy, um, but yeah, I, I, I guess about for, for the last ten years, I've more or less had things my way. I, I've just not made the best job of it, you know. And and I've now I've now got people in the band who 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 I'm happy with, who, who I know can do what I want them to do. Yes. And I can, you know, I, I can pretty much achieve anything I want now with it, which is which is marvellous. But yeah, it's taken a very, very, very long time. Yes. It's given me a lot of material for songwriting, which I, I, I can't complain about, you know, but... Uh... With, with your... Because, I mean, it is an epic story. I mean, have you ever sort of thought, I've, I've got to do the book one day? Well... Interestingly enough, there's um, the the book is kind of being written. Every are you aware of our our annual Ashes Festival? Yes, I see this on Facebook popping up. And yeah, I, and well, every few... year, every, every year on the Monday at the Ashes, we rehearse and present a complete Blythe Power album. And each year on the Monday, anyone who stayed through to the Monday night for that set, there's a booklet 
which is a, a, basically the story of that album and what was happening with the band at that time and all the lyrics to that album and an explanation of what the song was about and how it came to be written. And there's now something like eight volumes. <laughs> and this, this year we're, we're presenting, there was a single compilation called Ponto de Sioux de la Brue, which Midnight Music put together for release in France, in which they, they went bankrupt before it ever actually reached France. So we ended up, you know, with a bun, pile, piles of this LP selling them at gigs. And, you know, they were under the bed for a couple of decades, but uh, we got rid of them in the end. But so that, you know, this mon mon the Monday at the Ashes this year, we'll be playing the, the tracks from that album. And there is a booklet which will be given to free to everyone in, in, in the venue for that yes. set, you know. And that's building into, essentially, an encyclopedia and history of live power. I was going to say, because, you know, you, you do sort of, you have got over 40 years of, of kind of exciting stuff. And I guess you've been quite sensible in the drugs and rock and roll lifestyle. Yeah, I, I, I was, you know, I, I mean, I, I had my moments, but they were fairly innocuous ones. I mean, I was a dope fiend for years, you know, but <laughs> 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 nothing, no, nothing ever hard, I mean, nothing harder than that. I mean, I haven't drunk since I was 17, I, I, not since I had my first spliff, and then, you know, I, I, I stopped that eventually after... Yes, enough. But you know, I'm 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 fairly, I'm fairly straight edge. You know, I've got I've got my own sort of habits and vices, but uh, none of them are toxic. And did you? Because obviously, Midnight Music were probably the publishers. Did you manage to navigate that tricky? You know, those tricky. No, waters? not quite. When Midnight went bankrupt, we made we we kept the copyrights to all my actual songs, but the recordings we lost the, we lost the rights to. Right, and that was partially our own fault because if if we hadn't been such simpletons, and if we'd been mem if we we could have just in invoked the musicians' union and and got all those copyrights back because Midnight never paid us anything for anything, you know we had a sort of kind of hand to mouth relationship with them. You know they they would pay they would produce the stuff and pay for the recording and everything, and we'd buy them at dealer cost off them and sell them at gigs. And they would distribute them and keep the money, but it was all very sort of um, ad hoc. Uh, but unfortunately, Cherry Red bought everything. The receiver, we, we we tried to buy our copyrights off the receiver, but they would they sold the whole thing as a job lot to Cherry Red. Right. They wouldn't, they wouldn't break it up, and Cherry Red wouldn't then sell them to us at a point when we could have made use of them. I mean, not I'm not fussed now because I'm not interested in selling back catalogue. I'm interested in the stuff we're making now and the stuff we're going to make in the future. But, um, yeah, so that was a, a sore point at the time. You know, um, we, we lost the rights to those specific recordings, all the stuff that was made on, on uh, Midnight Music. Yes, and just without going too far back in the past, well, actually, decades now, the one, I remember one track that, again, your hardcore fans absolutely loved was Better to Bat. Can, we, can you remember writing and recording that album, uh, song? Yes, very much. Yeah, I remember. It was, I mean, it's it's essentially. It, I I'd just written. I I just read. Um, uh, C. V. Wedgwood's history of the Civil War and the trial of Charles was very much in my in my mind, and so it's it's ostensibly it is it, it it's you know a song about the the trial of King Charles. 
Yes. And with, with a little bit of subtext, as usual, about myself and, and the people who were annoying me at the time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but yes, I very much remember that. I, um, I, I can remember exactly where I was, you know, I can picture the room. I was in um, Latimer Road, um, a, a corporate house in Latimer Road with a, a view across to the BBC television centre at the time over the, over the sort of the Westway and the West London Railway line across big wastelands there. And I lived there for three years, and that, that's, that's where I wrote that. And I can remember, um, yeah, absolutely vividly writing it and just coming up with the refrain for the, for the chorus. Yes. And obviously, I mean, just kind of a few more questions. I mean, the other track, the other album I was kind of obsessed with in the 90s was um, Out From Under The King. And I mean, do you have fond memories of that one? Because there was... Very much, yeah. Out From Under The King was, was, was fantastic. That was another one we did with Fred Purser. And that was, yes, that was, that was, that was marvellous because, I mean, the guitarist on that album was, was, was brilliant. John Rutherford, he was superb. And... Yeah, we we stayed at Trinity Heights for two weeks, you know, residential studio in Newcastle, um, and we had a great time. And that was the first one that that Annie played keyboards on as well. So you know, every musically, it really came together. Yes. Um, Yeah, that that that's one of my favourites. And that is the one we will be doing on Ashes Monday, 2020. So we will be rehashing that entire album, and there will be a book about it next year. Oh, excellent! But, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I love that album. Yes, that, that, it's interesting because there, there'd been a fairly significant lineup change before we recorded that, and some of the songs re- reflect. Um, I've I'd, I'd kind of taken a step up from my my role as sort of um, how can I put it? You know, trying to try, my role of appeasement. I'd, I'd moved on a little bit from there by the time we did that from Under the King. Yes. Um, and there's a song on that album called um, Catherine's Will, which to a certain extent is me relinquishing that role of appeasement and basically saying, you know, I'm not going to take any more of this shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nice. That's a really good one. And Swing? Can you remember Swing? Oh, Swing. Yes, absolutely. I love Swing. That's, that's very happy memories of that song. Yes. That's, I mean, are you are you familiar with? You must be familiar with the old folk song about Lord Barnard, you know, and Little Musgrave or Matty Groves, depending which version you hear. Yes. In which, yeah, in in, in which you know he comes across them having it off and kills them all. Well, this is, you know, I, I've always had this bee in my bonnet about violence in folk song, you know, the, the, this gratuitous murder and rape. It never gets, there's never any redress. Well, in this song, Lord Barnard. He's quite rightly hanged for murder. <laughs> yes, this is all true. But it's also it, it's about someone from a previous existence. It's essentially, in that song, the person being hanged is someone who I was was, was formerly, you know, appeasing, and I <laughs> and I'm not any longer. <laughs> <laughs> that is great. You you could do a book just on all the subtext of every song. Oh you yeah, did. well that's. That, See, that, that is essentially what is going into the Ashes Monday booklet, the subtext of the songs, which most people won't ever pick up on because they're entirely personal. Yeah. So, um, but, but, you know, for the benefit of those people who take the trouble to come and stay, to come to the festival and stay for the Monday, that, then it, it's like Brody's O-level notes on Life Path. Yes, this is true. This is really good. <laughs> you could go on. So, look, this decade you did... 
women and horses and power and war. I mean, what's what's kind of when are you planning to go into the studio again? Well, I've I've got two complete albums worth of material written since then, which I'm desperate to record. But it's just a question of getting the finance in place to do it. We need to do another Kickstarter, but there's um there's stuff holding that up because you know, there are still some outstanding pledges from the last one that we're waiting for people to help us with. But um, yeah, I've got the songs written, um, songs that I'm desperate, <laughs> desperate to 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 release. Um, it's just like I said, it's just a question of of, of funding it because I don't want to do it on the cheap I mean I want to do it at Trinity Heights or you know chances are Fred may have retired by the time we, we've got the money in place to do it but um, you know I, I, I don't want to to do it on a shoestring or in a in the bedroom you know I, I want to do it in, in, a, in a good studio that has got the production qualities that make it worth doing because I, I've wasted enough time and energy and material producing recordings that I'm not happy with so yes. I'd, I'd, I'd rather wait until we can do it properly Fantastic. but um, no the songs I've got you know the, like I said uh, are almost must be about 24 25 songs which um, are, are, as I regard them as as good as or better than anything I've ever written Yes. And when you do, because your, your songwriting is quite epic do you rework it much? I mean do you sort of yeah, Endlessly yeah absolutely so it's kind of more poet, poetry in poet than just kind of slap it down, you know, don't bore us, get to the chorus. No, absolutely. Absolutely. They go through, they go through a lot of drafts. I mean, I've got a shelf full of notebooks, which is in front of me now, going back to 1987. Um, I have some like sort of 25 volumes of them now, and that's, they're full of set lists, notebooks, doodles, train spotting notes, you know, f- notes on my railway photography, all kinds of stuff, and they go right back, right back to about 1987, and they're full of endless drafts of all the songs that, that I've written since then, and some of them, some of them span, you know, weeks or months yes. within the context because they're like they're kind of like diaries, you know, everything's sort of or or I. Every time we play, I write the set list in, 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 in the notebook, and it's dated, so I can sort of pinpoint everything. I, I can know, looking in these notebooks, you know, between the set lists and the train, train spotting notes, I know exactly when I did pretty much everything since 1987. God, that's one really amazing archivist, though. You must have so well, it is, yeah, well, it is, yeah. It's a very, it's going to be a very confusing one if anyone ever tries to look in it. But, uh, yes, to try and make sense of it. we are. But that's very impressive. Well, look, Joseph, thank you. Oh, just last question. I mean, what would you say to, you know, I know it's a bit tricky, but your 18-year-old self or somebody that was starting out that you think, oh, that would have been just a great thing to know then, just that bullet point kind of... Thing that you've learned through the decades? Uh, just basically do your own thing. You know, go your own way. Do what you want. Focus on what you want. Don't try to please everyone. Don't try to be something you're not. Do what thou wilt. <laughs> Shall yes. be the whole of the law. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's good. I was kind of interested because I can remember the problem, though they made ma- amazing records at Motorhead, it was kind of, mm. I could see when Lemmy suddenly became Motorhead and the other members were almost, mm-hmm. it felt like they were, you know, employed by him. It, I'm not sure they were, but it was like Fast Eddie, you know, 
ta mm. filthy tailor, Lemmy, they were all kind of a third, and it was obviously, you know, the tension must have been horrendous, but, yeah. you know, and then it exploded and they all went, but then he continued and it was like, it's my band, I make the call, and that's, it just kind of, you can see it just must be a lot easier. Yeah. Yeah, well, there are, you know, bands I was listening to at the time, if you listen to a lot of the Clash stuff, there's a sort of, there's kind of a battle between Strummer and Jones. <laughs> You're never quite sure who's who's coming out on top there. But I mean, certainly with the jam, you know, Paul Wellers, he's the songwriter. Bruce Foxton's songs, they never quite, you know, he came close with Smithers, Smithers Jones, but he didn't have the sort of the lyrics that Paul Weller did. He didn't didn't quite have it, no. and that's that's evident. And and I think once you start allowing that sort of influence to creep in the band you know that kind of to to, to, to keep your fellows happy then it, it it the osmonds were wrong you know when they sang one bad apple don't spoil the whole bunch girl it does you know? <laughs> <laughs> well i was also i just remember it was john Entwistle on his um spider song i think they just gave that oh, to him oh god that was rubbish you know and, and <laughs> yes. yes, and luckily that Bill Wyman single he did is I think it was a big hit, but it was a dreadful song. But thankfully the Stones never recorded. <laughs> but that was just one of those awful ones on top of the pops that you can remember. But um, yes. Anyway, look, Joseph, this is amazing. So look, when I put this out, I'll um, I'll send you the link, and yeah. and and then you'll be able to hear it, and and you can use it elsewhere. Fantastic. And, and yes, brilliant. Be, be fantastic. But thank you ever so much. And like I said, I've oh well, thanks for talking, and, and thanks for taking an interest. You know, I believe me, I really appreciate. it <laughs> No, it's good. I have, you know, I can, you know, it's funny when you were talking that nineties period. I, I mean, I, you know, I was probably a bit late. I knew people who were into Blythe Power, and I mm. wasn't particularly because you can't be into everything. But then in the 90s, it was, oh, OK. And then Paradise Raised and un, Out From Under the King. Because I remember you used to sort of give a, send out a little kind of fold-out flyer. Did, that's right, the newsletter, yeah. Yes, and I was thinking, God, that was dedication. I, just, I'm, I probably still have some of those in my box well, upstairs. Well, at the time, we were making a living from, from Blythe Power, and... That was the way we did it. You know, it was a cottage industry, but it was actually, we were actually paying our bills by most of the time by being musicians, which, you know, a, a lot of people who were on the front cover of music papers never did. Yes. And it was all done because we, we did everything ourselves. I mean, what that meant was, you know, we, we, our CDs weren't being, really being distributed because we were selling them live, which meant that instead of getting, you know, sort of three or four pounds per unit back, from the wholesale price, we were getting the whole way, and which is three times as much. You know, I mean, one, one, there was one one year we played something like 175 gigs in that period, and you know that 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 was that, that it, it was good. You know, but yeah, it was it was our livelihood. So things like that newsletter were essential because we'd send one of those off. And we get mail orders back on the strength of it. Yes. And, you know, and, and people, and of course it was before the internet as well. The internet was in its infancy then. So it was the only way we had to keep in touch with people and let them know where we were playing because we weren't getting any press coverage. So what we do every night, every time we played, we'd, we'd sign people up who hadn't seen us before and we'd keep in touch with them. And a lot of those people, you know, well, they, they still come to the ashes every year. <laughs> That's how we keep in touch. And, I mean, the internet and Facebook has made it all so much easier, so much, you know, so <laughs> yes. much less labour-intensive. But I mean, essentially, those those 
those mail outs, yeah, they were our lifeline through the 90s. They, they, yeah. they really kept, kept the whole thing together. Well, I'm glad I kept quite a few. I'll have to have a look at them next time I'm upstairs. Excellent. Yes. Well, look, no, fond memories. I do love your version of Holly in the Ivy, by the way. It's all, oh, it, good, good, good. It me always too, too. gets that, played at Christmas. Yeah, that, 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 was, um, that was absolutely banned by previous members who, who, who were just so scared that people would think we were Christian fundamentalists that they would have nothing to do with it. So <laughs> getting that onto that that's why I tell you, you know, Out From Under The King is very much, for me, it, it, it's a weight off my shoulders. You know, a lot of the songs on that album are about throwing aside a sort of this baggage. <laughs> yes. Well, it's funny, because that, that particular song, whether it was yours or the other version we know, I always think it's so pagan, actually. I can't think of it. As it a... is, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> like... I mean, that's one of the things that drew me to it. You know? Yes, I, mean, I, mean, I couldn't. Yeah, and, and, and my version of it is essentially presenting the weirdness that was Christianity when I was a child. You know, I mean, the village I grew up in, there was a convent, uh, in the nunnery, and we just took it for granted. We had no idea who these were. It was full of oriental disabled nuns. Benedictine nuns, and we had no idea at my age, at the age of eight, who or what they were. They were just the nuns in the nunnery, like the baker was in the bakery. You know? Yes, <laughs> it's just the thing you had. It was a nunnery full of nuns, but things like that, no one ever explained. And, you know, the lyrics to hymns, no one ever explained to you what it meant. No, and you sing these words and do this stuff, and you didn't do it because you believed in anything. You did it because that's just what you did. You know, assembly every day at school, you sang hymns. Okay, you know, we'll go along with this. Um, and some and some me, were better what, what, than others, weren't they? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Some were absolutely some were miserable, but I mean, some of some of them, some of them, I, 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 well, I still sing to this day. We'll be playing. We'll be playing Emmanuel on Ashes Monday this year. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't know, I think it was the Lord of the Dance. I seem to remember felt quite sort of rocky, really. Oh yeah, yeah. That was, <laughs> that was, that was, it was quite modern. That was. <laughs> but no. Anyway. There you go. That really is going to be the last part of my interview with Joseph Porter. A huge thank you to uh, Joseph for giving me the time for that. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you stayed to the end because, frankly, he had a lot to talk about. And um, if you want to know any more information, Google, just Google Blythe Power and uh, rediscover them if you've uh, put them in the cupboard recently or in the last few years because, frankly, their work is stunning. And, um, yes, it does bring back lots of fond memories. Anyway, this has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, I know I sound desperate now, but you can make it nice, though. Otherwise, don't bother. Um, you can via Facebook or Twitter. Just go to at C86Show. These are all being archived. You can find them on all the usual platforms, which is uh, Spotify, iTunes, Mixcloud, Podbean, C86Show. Anyway, have a great week. I'll leave you with another track by the band. This is Carlisle. <laughs> Yeah.
Touched by her tears as she stands Hanging her head in her sorrow and wringing her hands 